I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. One of the scientists in Brazil that, that is now a colleague said, you know, it's, it's an industrially produced edible substance. And there's a ticklishness here because, of course, demonizing food that is the only affordable food for many, many people in Australia and in the UK, I am uncomfortable doing that. However, it is, I think, really important to call it out as not food. And we can acknowledge that people are dependent on it and they should feel very angry about this. People are forced to eat stuff that... Its purpose is not nourishment, which is what I think the definition of food should be. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. For a bit of change of pace, let's talk junk food this episode. It's been some time since I closed up shop on I Quit Sugar, but I still stay engaged in the politics of the food industry. Really, it's all part of a big picture that we investigate here. Our food is another aspect of our lives that's been co-opted by the late capitalist imperative that keeps us horribly addicted, distracted and unwell with widespread equity, racial and gender implications. Big food, big oil, big tobacco, big pharma... They chant from the same song sheet. So today's guest has just written a book about, in his words, the shit food we eat and why. Specifically, he looks at the politics and economics of ultra-processed food that we are almost force-fed today. Now, I first came across British doctor Chris Van Tolken when he and his identical twin brother Zand would do these health programs on the BBC where they'd investigate different health phenomenon often using their own bodies as guinea pigs. Yes, that old device. And parents listening may know of their kids' series, Operation Ouch, which does super well around the world. Chris has spoken out on a number of highly charged health topics in the UK press over the years, and so he's stayed on my radar. And recently he published a best-selling book, Ultra Processed People, Why Do We All Eat Stuff That Isn't Food and Why Can't We Stop? that argues that ultra-processed food, or UPFs, are destroying the planet, eradicating traditional cultures, shrinking our faces, making us infertile, and leaving us helpless against future microbial threats. But not for the reasons you might think. Seriously, the real reason is that UPFs are not food. They are profit-making product, and we are vehicles for these multinationals. As he writes, it's an inverted money supply system. We are the source of money and our health is commodified in order to extract that money. Now, a bit of bio information that we love to put in here before kicking off a chat. Chris is an infectious diseases doctor at the Hospital for Tropical Diseases in London and is an associate professor in molecular virology at University College London. His research focuses on how corporations affect human health, especially in the context of child nutrition. And he works with UNICEF and the World Health Organization. He's hosted dozens of BBC programs and has a podcast called Fed. Oh, and he's won two BAFTAs. In this chat, we talk about whether sugar is the problem. Chris argues it's not, and how exercise does not combat weight gain, not at all, and that the softness and crunchiness of food is key in this picture. 
We also cover why Pringles are not, in fact, potato. Now, this is a fun chat, and Chris and I, after years of being bullied and trolled by big food, wound up with very similar takes on the topic. And Chris does this while juggling his three-year-old daughter, who's due at childcare, but he has her watching Bluey in the background. Chris Van Tulliken, thanks for joining me here on Wild. It's it's great to finally kind of meet. I'm very excited. I, I think we, I yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what, what you're going to say to me more than what I'm going to say to you. No, I don't know. We'll see. I think your your information is I, it's look it's really dynamic. I've really enjoyed sort of getting my teeth, so to speak, into this information again. And some of the subtle angles that you bring to the debate, I think, are super super interesting. But we'll get to all of that. I would love to know to start with how you wound up focusing on ultra processed foods or UPFs. You're an infectious diseases doctor. You've hosted programs about health. You've spoken out on baby formula marketing in the past and big pharma, and you have a personal connection to obesity. Is there a natural progression from all of this to UPFs? Yeah. So you might think it's a bit weird an infectious diseases specialist is talking about nutrition, but I worked for a long time in, in Northern Pakistan and Central African Republic to the you know poorest regions on earth. And all the kids that I saw dying of infectious disease were dying because of very aggressive marketing by baby food companies. And the baby food was being sold to parents who didn't have the ability to clean the bottles, to, to afford it, to read the instructions, or to, crucially to make it with clean water. And so more and more my research switched from, I was a molecular virologist, and now most of my research is on what we call the commercial determinants of health. So how corporate and financial incentives affect human health, which is broadly food, gambling, alcohol, tobacco, and oil. Those are the big industries that have, and, and tech arguably, but we have less evidence about that. Yeah, I can see the progression. And I also know that you have an identical twin brother who previously suffered from obesity. And I know that that was a determiner in some of this kind of interest. Is that right? Yeah, no, yeah, that's also, I mean, there, if you have an interest in diet and nutrition, all of us do, because we all eat, right? So so the, the, the story, the narrative of how I come to write a book about nutrition is there's lots of uh, density in there. But yeah, I've, my brother and I share all these genetic risk factors for obesity, which I've got friends, colleagues who study the genetics of obesity, so they've, they've studied me. And what those genetics mean is that you're very food motivated. So if someone listening feels that they are someone who, you know, if your travel itinerary, when you go on holiday is a list of restaurants, you have the genetic risk factors for obesity, even if you don't live with obesity. So my brother moved to the States in a very stressful situation and he lived above Bartley's Burgers in Boston and he put on 30 kilos in a year. And part of the story of the book really is my total failure to engage with him in a compassionate decent way and really i was a big driver of his of his weight gain by nagging him and hassling him so part of the the project of this book is to reduce the the shame and stigma around obesity and diet related disease in general because i mean dot is just horrible at making at making all kinds of people feel bad about all kinds of things but we particularly abuse people who live with excess body weight yeah yeah and i think it's been caught up in this notion of a lack of willpower for so long and yet the science points in a completely different direction but medicine I think the rest of us we have not caught up on that and I think understanding the science per your book actually helps us have a lot more compassion and understanding and we've got the best chance of actually helping people who do have to live with obesity. Yeah can we deal with willpower like right now and just yeah, get it over and done let's with do it. it? I mean, it's morally, scientifically, and economically redundant, those arguments. And, and I want to sort of kill them. So the, there are loads of different ways you can argue this. But one of the most compelling is that there was a moment in the mid-1970s where everyone in the United States suddenly started to gain weight. And so the data compiled by their the Center for Disease Control shows this inflection point on this curve where everyone goes up, black, white, Hispanic, men and women, all ages, you know, from 10-year-olds to 80-year-olds. Now, you cannot say that, you know, 
the older female black population and the young white male population all simultaneously had a failure of moral responsibility. You know, that's not plausible. What happened was a spectacular change in the food environment. And my patients who live with excess weight, many of them have lost their own body weight, you know, half their body weight, two, three times over. They have incredible willpower, but they are living with an addicted relationship to foods that are engineered to drive excess consumption and are marketed to them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they are available everywhere. So, you know, we never say of smokers, oh, they lack willpower. We say, no, tobacco products are incredibly addictive. Similarly, people who live with addictions to drugs of abuse. So uh, we'll, we'll come to addiction, I'm sure, but addiction is an important part of this narrative. And willpower, you know, the solution does not lie in nagging people, whether you're a policymaker or or a family member, like just don't do it. It, it hurts. Them. Treating people badly is bad for them, basically. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's get straight to the problem with ultra-processed foods. So most people, I think, would probably say they're a problem because they don't contain enough vitamins or they've got too many additives and that's causing all of these problems, whether it's mental health issues, energy issues, obesity issues. That's all true to some extent, but you make a far more nuanced argument as to what is going on with these foods and how they're causing havoc in our bodies and in our culture. Can you detail that a little bit? Because I think when I read your book, and I know that people have had a similar reaction, they're quite surprised to learn about how and why these foods are wreaking havoc. Yeah. I mean, the the case that these foods are now the leading cause of early death on earth is strong. We've got World Health Organization data and Lancet Global Observatory data that, that show us that. And they don't just cause early death, they cause metabolic disease, cardiovascular disease, you know, there's a long list of problems, including but not limited to obesity. And crucially, if you don't gain weight, you still are at risk of metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular, etc. Dementia, anxiety, depression, eating disorders. How they do it, in the food industry are very, very keen as the tobacco industry were back in the 50s and the 60s to go, oh, we, you know, we are a bit worried about this. Let's make sure we study these foods carefully before we take any action. You know, we want to understand all the mechanisms. Now, we do have a pretty good understanding of some of the reasons which you went to, you know, you just listed about how these foods harm us. So we've got energy density. They're soft. They lack phytonutrients. They lack fiber. Um, they're high in fat, salt, and sugar and trans fats and, and the additives we have evidence on. But the main thing that I've discovered, you know, I've investigated the food industry for a long time. I spoke to loads of people in the food industry. And what they will all say is when you test these products, you know, whether it's a breakfast cereal or a loaf of bread, you make formulation A and formulation B. And B might just be a little bit different in one way. It's got a bit of extra salt or a bit of an emulsifier in it that, that isn't in formulation A. You test them on a big focus group of people. And the most important thing you measure is how much do people eat? And how quickly do they eat it? And the formulation that people eat the quickest and they eat the most of, that is the one that goes on the shelf. And then next month, we try formulation C and D. So the whole time, every aspect of our food, from the salt-sugar ratio to the acidity to the smoothness to the font on the box to the type of cartoon character we use to sell it to kids, everything is dialed up to 11, which is why these products are impossible to stop eating for many people. And the food industry know they're doing this, right? <laughs> they do it in plain sight. They, I mean, we have a break. Do you have Crave in Australia, the breakfast cereal? It's literally called Crave and it's chunks of chocolate. You know, we have slogans like once you pop, you start, can't stop. The, the food industry know they're doing this. So it's there's no one aspect of these products that you can point to and go, that's the problem. It's the emulsifiers. It's the sugar. It's the salt. It's the whole product has been put through an evolutionary design process to create a thing that is incredibly palatable and incredibly addictive. Yeah, and you mentioned a couple of things there, and I've heard you speak about it and you write about it in your book. Even just things like the fact that the food today that you know many of us are eating, like many of us, our diets are 60 to 80% ultra-processed foods. And I think with children, it's as high as 80 to 90% of the food that they're eating is this stuff, and it's stuff, Right. But you talk about the texture of the food and you just, you mentioned, you know, they're soft and chewy, right? And easily digested, you know, we don't have to use that much saliva and we don't have to chew it that much. What is the significance of that? I mean, these are factors that sort of, as well as crunchiness, right? Crunchiness also has a part to play 
in the various things that get us eating more of it. Right. So if you look at any product from a breakfast cereal to a nutrition bar or a, a drink, there are thousands of different aspects of that product that our senses detect from from the the, the branding and the jingle and the logo through to the, the sound, you know, that some of the caps are very specially designed or the ring pulls to make uh, they've got sonic branding. So the acoustic of the product, then we get the smell, then we get the mouthfeel, and then we get what happens inside this. There are thousands of different aspects of the product. One of the most important things is that in general, ultra-processed food is incredibly soft. So compare supermarket bread to real bread from your bakery. Compare a minced, emulsified, stabilized burger to a piece of steak. You know, you can go through almost all of these foods as soft. And the softness is a huge problem, partly because it means the foods are pre-digested. So they have very, very small particle sizes. They are absorbed in the gut almost before they get to the part of the gut that releases the nerve and hormone signals that says, hey, you're done now, you can stop eating. The softness also means you consume them very fast and the energy density means you consume calories fast. So we are very sure that fast consumption of calories is one of the most important things for driving addiction and for driving weight gain. And that we've got loads and loads of data on humans and animals that goes back to the 1990s on that. And the reason the foods are energy dense is partly because they're packed with fat and, and sugar, but it's partly because they're incredibly dry. So dryness is very important for shelf life. When you see those stories on the internet, if you know, I bought this cheeseburger from this chain in 2009 and it hasn't decayed, that has nothing to do with preservatives usually. It's simply because the food has no moisture in it and bugs need moisture to eat it. So the softness and the dryness and the energy density, that is kind of the first on the on the list of reasons the food drives weight gain. And we have, you know, dozens, possibly hundreds of different studies that that are very clear about that. So that that's something to really notice if you're not chewing, if you, you know, especially with kids, you know, kids' foods, I think in Australia you have these as well. A lot of it comes in pouches. Yeah. So the kids just squirt it into their mouth. There are yogurts in little squirty tubes or little pouches. And the other aspect of softness is if you don't use the muscles of your face, to chew your food, you don't stimulate bone growth. And so we have really interesting data from Australian indigenous populations where over about 100 years, facial sizes have, have shrunk as they've switched from a traditional diet, which was chewy and had lots of fiber and you needed to process it with your mouth, to a modern diet. And so the reason that we've all had our wisdom teeth taken out, and we all need braces, is partly dental decay, but it's partly that our, our bones don't seem to be growing in our face. So our jaws are literally too small for our teeth. So the softness is just one of hundreds of aspects of the food that is driving all these problems. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was working in this space with the I Quit Sugar business and the books and all of that kind of thing, Western A. Price, you know, did a lot of studies on this, the shape of the jaw and how that was a very good marker for the quality of the food. And at the time, he put it down to sort of a high fat, high protein diet. And he identified different parts of the world and how their jaws shifted once sugary foods arrived. Again, narrowing of the jaw, that kind of thing. So, you know, we'll get to the sugar piece in a bit because I, I know that we've got slightly, you know, varying positions on this, but this has been noticed for a while. And I'm sure that the the, the oral health catastrophe that sugar wreaks on our, our bodies, I'm sure that is also intimately linked to bone growth. You know, the, the, the softness data combines with all that sugar data. You know, it's this is food that affects every single aspect of our bodies, you know, from, from our scalp all the way down to our toes. And yeah, I, I don't know that, that those data as well, but that makes total sense to me. Well, yeah. And when we're talking about ultra-processed food, most of it, in fact, I would I would say almost all of it contains sugar and is high levels yeah. of sugar. So we're talking about the same food and, you know, you can focus on on the whole component or, or the sugary element of it, but they come in the same packet. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's ultimately what we've all been eating for several decades now. Let's just go back to the obesity piece because you point out in your book that it's not caused, and we've already sort of mentioned it's not about willpower, it's about the addictiveness of it all. But you mentioned that it's not about eating too much fat, 
it's also not about a lack of exercise. And you're also saying it's not about sugar per se. Now, I think there's been a fair bit of information out for a while now that fat doesn't necessarily make you fat. Like that equation doesn't stack up. It's nice and neat on paper, but it's not how our bodies, you know, process fat. The exercise piece as well, I certainly was talking about it some time back about how the calories in, calories out mantra was developed by the soft drink or fizzy drink industry. And we bought it because again, it sounds like simple, logical maths. You eat the calories and then if you can burn off that many calories on a you know stationary bike or going to the gym, yep. then you should be fine. You can drink as much Coca-Cola and Pepsi as you like. You just got right. to do the exercise. The number on the bike said I burned 250 calories. I can now have a cookie. Yeah, exactly. makes sense. And exactly. it does not work like that. Well, yeah. Can you just remind listeners of why it doesn't? Because it's, it is fascinating. And, and I mean, I used to say, look, you can't run off a Mars bar. But yeah. yes, you go into a little bit more detail than that. So, well, this will sound almost, I mean, you and I talking about this as if it's kind of obvious. I mean, it's obvious to us now. For, when I discovered this, it felt entirely heretical. And this was the chapter I spent the longest on. So when I was writing the book, the big question was, how if we're talking about obesity, which is the thing that everyone is obsessed with, you know, there are many other diet-related diseases, but obesity is what we care about. How much of the, when I talk about food, how much of the problem am I really focusing on? It surely, in my head, probably half the problem is caused by inactivity and lack of exercise. So I went on a bit of a journey to go, look at, you know, let, let's, let's, you know, there's probably another book here and, and I want to be clear how much I'm writing about. And two things emerged. First of all, there's this, we've had data for a long time that doing exercise doesn't help you lose weight. And no one's ever really been able to explain that. And a guy called Herman Ponser really sort of put together a very big data set going back to the 90s. And the, the, the experiment he did that was very neat, and this is just one of many experiments, he went to live with a tribe in sub-Saharan Africa in Tanzania called the Hadza. Now they're hunter-gatherers. They walk 15 to 20 kilometers a day. They hunt antelope. They dig tubers out of the ground. They live a very traditional lifestyle. And what he found was that if you are a 70 kilogram, let's let's take me. So I'm an 85 year old, I'm an 85 kilo, 45 year old man. And if I went and lived as a Hadza hunter gatherer, I would not burn any more calories per day. That's that's what the data thinks. Then what you do now. The same is true. See London. Typing away at your computer. Yeah. I mean, look at me. You know, I sit here. I sit at my desk at my computer all day. You know, I see the odd patient, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty sedentary life. So the way that this seems to work is that someone like me burns around about 3,000 calories a day. If I train for a marathon at an elite level, I will change briefly the number of calories I burn. But if I just walk around a lot over many years, it doesn't change. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm stealing energy from other budgets. So I basically have to spend 3000 calories a day. If I go for a run, I spend it on running. If I don't go for a run, I spend it on anxiety, inflammation, and high hormone levels that we think may drive cancers. So the reason exercise is good for us is it stops us burning energy on all this stuff that's horrible for us. So exercise is incredibly good for us, but it really, the kind of exercise we all do in reality, you know, we might walk to work or go to the gym three times a week for an hour or half an hour, you know, that does not impact our, our calories expended. So first of all, Herman Ponser and, and colleagues kind of put all this together. The second bit of the puzzle was to go, well, hold on, why did we all believe the opposite? We've had this data since the 90s. You know, there's so many different bits of evidence to the contrary. And the answer was Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola had yep. funded this extraordinary, and you sound like a conspiracist. You sound like a nutcase. This, you know, I, I put put the papers in the book. I mean, this was a network analysis conducted by very sober colleagues of mine at the London School of Hygiene here, and and they they you know, Coca Cola funded a network of hundreds of scientific papers. Global, there was an Energy Balance Institute that they funded, mm -hmm. and they set up this whole public health program, exercises medicine. With the idea being, drink a Coke, run off the excess calories. You know, Coke is energy. And so all that messaging that we see around the Olympics, where energy drinks and energy bars, and it's like, no, no, this is just a candy bar and a sugar drink. That's all yep. it is. And it will it will drive all kinds of problems. So yeah, no, exercise, very good for you. But if you are trying to lose weight, I would recommend exercise as part of your your approach and going for long walks is helpful because we don't generally eat on our long walks but 
you know, you lose weight with, with dieting. It, and I should say, losing weight is incredibly hard. And I, I also don't support the idea that anyone should lose weight. You know, I'm, I'm not here saying people have to lose weight. I think that's incredibly difficult and no one has cracked that code. Yep. And to be clear, and you are very clear about this in your book and all of your communications, as was I when I was doing the work in a similar space a number of years ago, this is not about telling people what to do. You know, my book was called I Quit Sugar. I gave it a go and I went down the rabbit hole, did all the science and all the things that worked and didn't work. And here's the information, should you wish to try it yourself? And I worked this idea that a gentle experiment was the way to go about it. I want to get to your approach in a moment, which I think is really intriguing. But first and of all- very similar. Yeah, I think it was just coming from a similar angle, actually, that people do not shift behavior with draconian do not do this measures. You know, you see a wet paint sign, all you want to do is touch it. That is human behavior, right? So, you know, I had all these other techniques like crowding out with, you know, exciting food. So I didn't cut alcohol out of the program. You know, I, I, it was like we do one thing at a time. You make these gorgeous looking things, that you know, foods that you get excited about and become more exciting and glamorous than the sugary shit that you were eating, so on and so forth. But while we're talking sugar, talk us through why you feel that sugar isn't at the heart of the obesity epidemic. Well, sugar is a huge problem. So sugar is the only nutrient of fat and protein in sugar that we have good evidence does drive excess consumption. And it does drive weight gain. Yeah. yeah. It is one of the reasons that ultra processed food is addictive. The complexity with sugar has always been that most of us can have a bowl of sugar on the table and we don't eat sugar by the spoonful. We might sometimes dip the tip of the knife in the honey, but sugar in general it, on its own is not particularly addictive. And but but if you add sugar to food, you will eat more of it. And you can do this experiment in the morning with your porridge. Porridge without sugar is fine. Porridge with sugar is amazing, you know, and, you know, you can add sugar to anything. Immediately becomes palatable. Sugar drives weight gain. Sugar rots your teeth. And sugar is a real problem. Now, the, the thing about sugar, I suppose, that I feel has been sorted out in the last 10 years is that a calorie of sugar is not different to a calorie of fat. And this is kind of a nuanced metabolic argument. So there's this there was this idea that was a very good idea and had some evidence for it that if you eat sugar, it puts up your insulin and you get these sugar spikes and it dry, you know, it causes metabolic stress and leads to an increased risk of diabetes. And and what it seems like is that carbohydrate insulin hypothesis is probably, I don't think that's the evidence has really ended up supporting this. So in my view, if you, I think the evidence is pretty good that if you eat the same number of calories all day and you have a high sugar diet or a high fat diet or low sugar, you know, you can fiddle around with all those nutrients, but the sugar in the diet doesn't seem to be doing harm. But the, mm. this is all kind of angels dancing on the head of a pin. And, you know, decent scientists, I mean, there's a whole team at Harvard who would entirely disagree with me. So, you know, in a sense, it's a bit moot. What I think the evidence shows is that if you buy a bag of sugar and you use it at home to cook with, to sweeten porridge with, if you have it as an ingredient in your house, there is every evidence that that is much healthier than the sugar that you consume in ultra processed food. So I feel the most harmful sugar is when we put it in a lolly and we flavor it and we wrap it up with stabilizers and, and it ends up in an extremely sticky form that lodges between teeth and drives tooth decay. And when it's wrapped up in these formulations and it's used as an appetite stimulant, you know, when you add sugar to porridge, you make it a bit tastier. When the food industry adds sugar to industrially processed or ultra processed foods, they are adding it with extra salt, usually with acids and flavorings and texturants to create these hyperpalatable products. And, and the, the sugariness is just one aspect. I mean, you said earlier, sugar's in almost all this food. And that is, that is such a crucial point that the pizzas are nearly as sugary yeah. as the breakfast cereal. You know, the, the savory breads are as sugary as cakes. You know, the, the, and, and that is because if you add the sugar and you add the salt together, you, you really stimulate people to eat more. And that is the agenda of, of industry. So does that 
Yeah. Does that make sense? I think I, we I both think... feel like sugar is a huge problem, but I'm saying there's also there's there's more to this food than than the sugar. Totally. I don't think we're actually saying different things. My chief issue with sugar was that it can derange the appetite hormones. So anything that mucks with hormones is highly problematic. Mm. Um, so the ghrelin, leptin sort of mechanism, and that's with, I think, ultra-processed foods in general. It, they are, you know, designed intricately to make you eat, eat more of it and to shut down certain appetite uh, mechanisms. I agree with you that the sugar that you have at home you're adding it to good food. So if it's getting you to eat more of that food, like if your kid's eating a bit more porridge in the morning, that's not a bad thing. If the sugar's been added to junk and you're eating more of that, then that is a bad thing. So yeah. there's that as well. When we make a lasagna at home, so I, when I make a tomato sauce, I sometimes add a pinch of sugar. I don't add 10 tablespoons of Correct. sugar, which is what, what will happen to the beans, you know. So we steady our hands a lot more in our in our own kitchens. Yeah, yeah. And, and and you're aware of it when you're making a cake and you're putting a cup and a half of sugar in there. There's a little bit of an awareness of what's going right. on. Um, you take responsibility for it. You buy a cake from the supermarket in a plastic container and bring it home. You're just not aware of the process. So, look, there's there's a whole range of arguments that I that I made for why sugar was a problem, but it was very similar to what you're saying. I also pointed out that really the sugar problem is a processed food problem because most of the sugar that we were consuming is consumed via processed food. And so one of the biggest tricks for quitting sugar was simply no longer eating processed food. So, you know, it and nutritional science, it's an inexact science. So we're playing around, not really knowing, is it the sugar? Is it the combination of sugar and salt? Is it sugar mixed with this, you know? And nutritional science is a very tricky realm. And I'm when I look at your I Quit Sugar website, you know, I get at the recipes, it's this kind of incredibly delicious food and it's all actual food mm. and it I mean, can taste amazing. My program was surreptitiously a learn how to cook program. I mean, that's what it really was because a big part of the issue for people is that they don't know how to cook and cooking is deemed more expensive in many parts of the world than you know, processed food. So I would be using ingredients that weren't all hipster and cool. You know, I would try to use ingredients that didn't involve, you know, five avocados and six medjool dates, you know, that, you know, very few of us can afford. So it was, you know, it was a lot of that kind of going back to old school practices. But I think you've clarified all of that. And I think the point that I take away from all of this is that these food manufacturers are bringing together a bunch of ingredients whether it's sugar, whether whatever cheap ingredient it is, they bring it together to produce an outcome. The outcome is to make it cheap for them to produce and to make it last longer and to get us eat to eat as much of it as possible. That's their modus operandi. I think that's the problem with this kind of food, if we can call it food. We can't call it food. What do you call it? You have another word for it that I think well, somebody, it was explained colleague, to me by one of one of the scientists in Brazil that, that is now a colleague said, you know, it's, it's an industrially produced edible substance. Mm. And I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a ticklishness here because, of course, demonizing food that is the only affordable food for many, many people in Australia and in the UK, I am uncomfortable doing that. However, it is, I think, really important to call it out as not food. And th I don't think there's any easy way of, of having this conversation without some stigma. So... I, I think we can acknowledge that people are dependent on it and they should feel very angry about this. People are forced to eat stuff that its purpose is not nourishment, which is what I think the definition of food should be. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You make the point that really this this substance is a profit-making product and it relies on us eating as much as of it that we can so essentially we become a vehicle for these multinational food corporations. And you've written, it's an inverted money supply system. We are the source of money and our health is commodified in order to extract that money. And I think as part of taking that sort of stigmatization around junk food, right, as part of taking away that, I think it's really important to under the, understand the politics and the economics going on here. So to maybe explain how all of that works. I mean, I think many listeners are aware of the marketing campaigns, the campaigns geared at children to get them addicted to the stuff at a young age. You know, we're talking McDonald's toys and various gimmicks. I think people are also probably aware of the lobbying that big food does to politicians to shift laws in various countries. But there's an example that I think you, you, you in fact, dedicate an entire chapter to Pringles. I know you don't like to single out <laughs> you know, particular brands or products. But this example... I don't mind singing out Pringles, I mean... <laughs> well, this is... I've got to say, you call you call Pringles crack in a cardboard tube. And I've got to say... No, I, I quote I quote another journalist doing it in The Guardian and they got away with it. So I'm like, okay. So my lawyers were like, okay, well, you can quote someone else saying it because that's... Okay. So. Now you can quote me saying it. I'm quoting somebody. I'm quoting you quoting somebody else. So I should I mean, be fine. Pringles, look, Procter & Gamble had a whole marketing campaign. Once you pop, you start, can't stop. I mean, I think the, Procter & Gamble are unlikely to sue either of us over the allegation that Pringles are addictive since they have lent very hard into that idea. So I, I think we're on legally safe ground, but you're never on, you know, they've got a big budget. Yeah, say that. exactly. And look, anyway. I, what I love is the sort of story about how they used a bunch of court cases in and around whether they are in fact a potato chip or not. And I think it really shows how this industry operates. I mean, there's so many factoids in this chapter about Pringles. And I've got to say, I, I have this joke with this guy I know where quite often when I'm traveling, I buy an emergency thing of Pringles. It's like this idea that I might be left somewhere without food. And well, you know, the plane goes down or Yeah, exactly. You're just stranded on the castaway. Exactly. And I, I don't know, I it sort of always struck me as fairly innocuous. So the marketing campaigns worked on, you know, on me. And I think you've pointed out that each chip has been engineered into an identical saddle shape, the size of a child's fist. And and that's all intentional. I think also like, I mean, there's yeah, serving size is 13. The point about the saddle shape mm, please. is it's precisely congruent with your tongue. Yes. So you can place the, 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 the chip on the tongue and every taste receptor on your tongue will be in contact with a part of the Pringle. And then it it shatters because it's called a hyperbolic paraboloid. And it's a really interesting engineering structure. You'll see it in buildings because it's quite a useful way of distributing force over a shape. So there's all kinds of engineering aspects to it. The way it shatters is very satisfying. So oh, yeah, yeah, I know. it's not merely strongly <laughs> flavoured and salty. It is arguably one of the, the most designed food products around it's you know it's it's one of it's like a it's the cigarette of, of food groups yeah so talk us through the tax law stuff and is it a potato is it not a potato <laughs> it's just where the listeners are like oh my goodness tax law i didn't come here for tax so so look the every time you try and regulate the food industry they sue you and they have very, very deep pockets. You know, the marketing budget of any one of these, there's a small number of companies, there are 15 to 20 companies that feed most of our calories. Any one of them, the, the, the marketing budget dwarfs that of a, of a public health agency. So what happened with Pringles is we have a weird law in the UK that when our value-added tax laws were developed, they were about taxing luxury foods. More or less, this was some of the logic. And and so potato crisps in the 60s when the laws were developed were the luxury food. So the, the, the tax applied to, to potato crisps. 
And the lawsuit, the Pringles lawsuit, the legend has it they were kind of sued by someone because there was so little potato in the crisp that it shouldn't, it couldn't be called a potato crisp. In fact, it was Procter and Gamble suing our treasury, saying that there is so little potato in Pringles <laughs> that you can't call them potato crisps, so they shouldn't be subject to tax. And one of the weird things about our tax stories, Doritos, for example, they're corn chips. They aren't subject to tax because when the law was written, no one could imagine that we'd all be eating corn chips. So there's a whole load of these. You, you know, you might notice there's this expansion of kind of lentil foam chips and yes. pea protein. You know, there's all this, and, this, yep. chick, this, you know, these sort of baked goods that are sort of healthy snacks. A lot of it came out of the UK, and it's it's the companies trying to avoid tax. So they they had a very very elaborate strategy over nearly a decade, and they did in the end lose. The judge was unconvinced, and and the, the, there's some amazing parts of the judgment. But part of the case required Procter and Gamble, who were going to send save twenty percent on every tube, it required them to expose the way they make them. And so what the lawyer for Procter & Gamble tried to say is, look, they, they aren't crisps. They're much more like a cake. As you know, they're, they're, <laughs> they're pressed into a mold and then fried and the fat is distributed in a particular way. So they have this sort of melty mouthfeel. Anyway, it, it all eventually got thrown out and they're still taxed. But yeah, the, the important thing about ultra processing, and I think you have understood this very deeply, is it is not about the physical and thermal and chemical processes we do to the food. I mean, those things are harmful. It's the marketing, the lawsuits, the environmental destruction. It is every aspect of every product is part of this ultra process system. So my research now, which I do actually very much with teams in Australia, there's a big group at Deakin I work with, and I've just published a paper with a, a group of economists and political scientists about this financialization in the food system. So what we're sure is that every when when you speak to people in the food industry, they are absolutely clear that every single decision they make is guided by money. And this isn't a conspiracy. This is the way that big companies work. If you sell less food than your competitor, your share price drops, you pay less dividend to your share owners. And either if they own enough shares, like they're a big institutional investor, they will fire you and your board and your product development team and replace you, or they will start realigning the business in other ways and forcing you to save on ingredients. So, you know, th this is not a conspiracy. Uh, my book is not an anti-capitalist book, but we, most of us, like you said, people understand the lobbying, they understand the marketing. I think there is a, there is a genuine lack of understanding. There, there is a belief that the food supply system is about bringing us food and that this is in some way regulated. And it really isn't. In Australia and the UK, there is no warning label on any unhealthy food. And that is the thing that needs to change. And that is the thing that any public health body that tries to do it will be sued into the ground at every single stage with every single line of policy text. And and people people do not get the aggressive nature of this. I get it because I've been, the, my book was published six months ago and I have been continuously attacked by food industry funded individuals, many of them who seem quite mm. credible for six months. I've been really curious about that, actually, because I experienced the same, you know, pushback yeah. and pushback's a very mild way of putting it. But, you know, I was actually able to dig down to, you know, these people that set up fake Twitter accounts with pictures of sort of wellness looking warrior girls with, you know, yoga mats and so on. And they, you know, I worked out that it came from one source who was paid by Coca-Cola. You know, I've since learned people. Amazing. Have you yeah. published that? No, because... Because, really, is my get life exhausted? Yeah. yeah, and proving it, you. So this is my experiences. I thought I would get my day in court with Nestle and Coke and the other companies I'd criticised, and of course they're more sophisticated than that. What you get is you appear on the radio with a professor from a university who sounds very a incredible. dietitian. What you have to do is spend the first half of the interview going. Okay, I'm sorry to do this to you. And it's often a very senior woman, so there's a misogynistic aspect. I'm it's yeah. very easy to cast me as And that's as intentional. Is, that is intentional. Oh, yeah, yeah. And 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 you know, you have to explain that this is someone whose research has been funded by Pepsi and Mars for the last two decades. They work for, you know, our major charity in the UK, the British Nutrition Foundation, is majority funded by 
ultra-processed food companies like McDonald's and Coke and all the major supermarkets. But it's very exhausting. For the listener, you can sound a bit conspiratorial. So we, we've we made a lot of progress because I, I have an alliance of people who, who know all this. And I think the public are pretty suspicious of charities that are funded by Coke. I think people people get that nutrition charities might probably shouldn't be funded by Coke. So we've we're doing okay, but th- there is control of our science. The Science Media Center that distributes all the scientific information, information to journalists, funded by Nestle and Procter and Gamble. Our Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition. The Government Committee has many members on it who are funded by companies like Danone, Nestle, big food industry groups. And then we have our, our charity, and many of the charities are funded by the food industry. So a lot of my time is spent rather than saying what needs to happen, it's going, no, no, the person you're having the argument with should be deplatformed. They're an industry spokesperson posing as a credible actor. Oh, yeah. And then they would come at you accusing you of just making money out of it because you're selling a book. And I'd be like, oh, yeah. Except that it's so transparent. I am clearly selling my message. It's got the title on, like, there's no hidden beneficiaries or vested interests. It's really, really clear. I mean, you know what you're The getting. arguments, you know, you try not to get too much into the defense, but it's like, I'm not paid by someone who profits from diet-related disease. I don't know if this happened to you. The other thing that's worth saying is the amount of money I'm offered by these food companies on a weekly basis would be life-changing if I took it. I mean, far, I mean, you know, books do not make you a huge amount of money. Even if you have a big bestseller, they don't turn you into a millionaire, you know, unless you're, you're writing Harry Potter or something. Every week I'm offered 10, 20, 30,000 pounds I was offered £50,000 to fly to the States to a board meeting of a fast food company. And when I say, no, it's fine, I'll do it, but I'll buy my air flight and I won't take any money. I just want to come and speak to your board and find out how you're coming. Suddenly lose they interest. Go, oh, <laughs> they go, no, don't worry about it. So I've met I've met a couple of the food companies. I don't take the money, but I've, I've probably turned down £200,000, I would think, since the book has been published. And I... I'm very privileged that I can do that. I make money as a doctor. I make money from television and from books. And as an academic, you know, I have other sources of income. So I'm very sympathetic to why dietitians partner with big food companies. You know, not not everyone has other ways of making money. But the first thing that has to end is the conflicts of interest. None of the other policy stuff is ever going to work until the Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition has a regulatory approach, not a partnership approach. Yeah. Okay. So why don't we move into your suggested solutions, which are predominantly about going upriver rather than, you know, focusing on what we've all got to do at an individual level, which really replicates, I think, what activists are trying to share in the climate movement in a whole range of spaces. It's the same kind of approach. You need government. Yeah. 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 So talk us through a couple of things that you recommend. Well, for 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 your listeners who can't wait for policy change, which is going to take decades. With tobacco, it took 60 years. There is an invitation in the book to eat along. So we have very good evidence from smoking that if you stop forbidding yourself an addictive substance and you engage meaningfully with what it is, what its purpose is, the companies that make it, you read your ingredients lists while you consume the substance. So my advice is eat the food while you read my book. And if you can't afford, like I'm not actually here selling my book. I'm Get it from a many library. People are, the, the mo- you can get it from a library. But also you can go onto the Guardian website and read 20 free articles on ultra processed food. There are so many pieces now. You know, if, if you can't afford the, whatever it is for the book, then don't, don't sweat, buy it on eBay. Um, or eat while you, you listen know, to this podcast. Eat while you listen and mm. read your ingredients list and ask yourself, what is the purpose of this? Is this food, was this designed by a company that wants to nourish me, that loves me, that wants to build community, protect the environment that cares for me? Or was this built by a company that wants to take my health and turn it into money for their institutional investors? And if, if it has an ingredients list, the latter is probably true. We know that you can transform addiction into disgust quite quickly. For some people, many ex-smokers will say, yeah, there was just a moment where suddenly I couldn't do it anymore. It happens with alcohol. It happens with other drugs of abuse. So you're basically part of an experiment you didn't volunteer for. And my proposal is just continue the experiment, but get the data for yourself. And you you may be lucky enough to sort of be released. Some people just need to cut down, like with alcohol. Lots of us lazily drink two glasses of wine a night. And actually, 
once we know it's really harmful, we can switch to one glass of wine a week on a Friday night. And that some people may be able to do that. If you're addicted, abstinence, if you can afford it, is going to be the, the best thing. We, we know people can't be moderate. That's what I've done is I, I don't have any of it. For policy, it's a pretty straightforward laundry list of actions that are built around tobacco control. So the food industry was the tobacco industry. RJ Reynolds and Philip Morris, two biggest tobacco companies in the world, they bought Nabisco, General Foods and Kraft, and they made the biggest food companies in the world. And they took all their tobacco expertise or the flavoring expertise and the marketing expertise. They applied it to selling us food. So many of the, the addictive products that we now eat were developed in-house by tobacco scientists. And that is that is very well evidenced. We've got all the documentation to, to prove it, you know. So we need to use the tobacco control playbook just as they use their playbook for how to sell us stuff. We need to use it to regulate them. So you end the conflicts of interest. Industry money is dirty money. If you're a doctor or a scientist or a policymaker or a charity, don't take money from companies that profit from diet-related disease. It's really straightforward. If they sell candy bars, if they sell cola, if they sell breakfast cereal, you have to say no to their money. And you will be poorer, but you will then be able to critique them. And then what we need is we need warning labels on the food. We need a warning about ultra-processed food in the national nutrition guidance like they have in France, Israel, Belgium, Canada. They're going to have it in the States. They're going to have, they've got it all across South and Central America. You need big black hexagons on harmful ultra-processed products. So this is what they have in Colombia and Chile. When you put hexagons on the food, and when you take the cartoon characters off the food, kids ask their parents not to buy it. You know, just, you know, you, you and I may remember asking our parents to stop smoking because we knew it was harmful. I, I asked my dad to stop smoking. And sure enough, when you did, kids are smart, right? Like I, I do a kid's show in Australia. Kids want to be healthy. They want to be tall and strong and smart. Um, they want to eat well. So then we need to change institutional food, prisons, hospitals, schools. Um, and then education is quite low down my list, not because it's not important, but because at the moment there's something almost gross about going into a school in a low-income community and saying, yes. kids, you know, this eat, they eat five portions of fresh fruit and veg a day. And in the UK, many families are like, well, we'd love to. We'd love to, but how do we afford it? They're more expensive per kilo than steak. We don't have a fridge. We don't have a stovetop cooker. We don't own a knife. We don't own a cutting board. We don't own saucepans. You know, the people who are most affected are the people who are least able to make the change. So, you know, one thing I never talk about on Operation Ouch is the food the kids eat because it's it's too political and it's too stigmatizing. So, yeah, we do need education in school. We need to bring back a culture of home-cooked food because it, in the end, there's only one diet that we've ever studied that's harmful you know, it's industrialized Western food, East Asian diets, South Asian food, high Arctic diets, Mediterranean diets, French diets. They're all, you know, very varied. They're all associated with good health. And it's, it is only industrial food. And all the diet approaches that work, low fat diets, keto diets, paleo diets, low sugar diets, most of them involve, as, as you have said, getting rid of ultra processed food. And when people succeed in Losing weight, such as that is success, it is normally because they've, they've started cooking for themselves, they've engaged with what food is, and they've switched away from addictive products. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's often what people get confused about. They'll try a paleo diet, they'll try this, they'll try that. If vegan, vegetarian, what they end up doing is cutting out a fair proportion of their junk food that they're eating before although i yeah. would argue the vegetarian vegan diet has actually been hijacked by it's all fast the, i mean food. you can buy those keto bars and those paleo bars now i mean there's there we've yeah. got these bars in the uk i mean they there are no there are these keto bars in the uk that have no they it's not they have only one or two industrial ingredients they are only industrial ingredients none of the molecules in them are f familiar to anyone yeah so, Chris, when I was working in the I Quit Sugar realm, I used to say to people, you know, they'd say, well, what can we do? What are the, what's a simple way of putting things? And I used to say, well, look, you know, when you're looking at the back of a packet, least number of ingredients is a good way to go. Anything from a packet is a really good way to avoid, you know, the, the bad stuff and particularly sugar. Cook, just cook, because when you cook, you have to use real ingredients. I was very careful, as I mentioned before, not to tell people to do anything. It was like, it's up to you. I quit sugar. I gave it a go. You might want to try it. 
And I also sort of had the message that, look, big food is not going to change overnight. There are too, mm. too many vested interests. As you said before, it took 60, 70 years for big tobacco to have its comeuppance. So I would say to people, so take charge yourself, you know, get angry, get engaged and so on. What about you? I mean, one of the things I, I took up from the book, which I think is really helpful, when a product has health claims attached, it generally means it's an ultra-processed food because nobody needs to put mm. a sticker on a broccoli and say, you know, has this many calories, has this many, you know, phytonutrients and so on. Yeah, I've been talking a lot about Cocoa Pops in the UK as a kind of iconic product of my childhood that is sold as healthy. And the branding now, I got a box of Cocoa Pops the other day to just have a look at it. And it's really aggressively marketed as like high fiber supports your family's health. So anything that says anything like that is almost certainly not supporting your family's health. Yeah, it's it's a good rule of thumb. Hey, Chris, I know you've got to get on to looking after your three-year-old daughter who's currently watching She's being Bluey. looked after by Bluey, yeah, yeah she's fine. which is very, very accurate. She'll be very disappointed when I'm off this call. <laughs> it was a very interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your service to, to this area. Good luck with the lobbyists and the various vested interests that will continue to go after you. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you and getting some different, fresh and up-to-date perspectives on all of this. I really appreciate it. I think you you have a much more nuanced perspective on this than almost anyone else I've spoken to. So no, it's 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 been brilliant. I really appreciate it. So. Oh, wonderful! Thank you. I actually really love that chat. Chris is a committed activist in this space and he's treading carefully, navigating all the complexities and competing interests inherent in the nutritional space. Now, there are a few key points that really stuck with me. Bad eating and weight gain is 100% not about willpower. And we've got to stop this way of thinking. It's about being trapped in a heavily orchestrated, manipulated system. Now, as a bit of a late FYI, UPFs actually make up 57% of the Western diet and up to 80 to 90% of kids' diets. I also read in his book, that each of us ingest eight kilograms of additives per year on average. That's four times the weight of flour that we buy annually for home baking. And as he says in the interview, it's the leading cause of death, also responsible for declining height in both the US and UK. The problem isn't the chemicals as such, or the lack of nutrients, or the sugar, not per se or in isolation. It's the fact that the so-called food we are eating consists of whatever is required to make us eat more of it and to become more addicted to it. As Chris writes, we are part of an experiment we did not volunteer for. And I'll quote him here. New molecules and new combinations of molecules are being tried in your food the whole time. You take all the risks in this experiment, the companies get all the benefits. Or as I quote back to him during the interview, food is now a profit-making product and it relies on us eating as much as we can. We are vehicles for multinationals. It's an inverted money supply system. We are the source of money and our health is commodified in order to extract that money. So what do we do? We don't nag others. We don't stigmatize. We understand and have compassion for the fact that we're all trapped in a system. We take on board exercise won't save us, nor will going keto or paleo, not if it still sees us eat UPFs. We also come to learn that if something comes with a screaming health message on the packet, it's probably going to be a UPF. Ditto if it just comes in a packet. We can also become activists to combat big food ploys like paying nutritionists to push their agenda in the media. And at a more personal level, we turn addiction into disgust by becoming more and more aware of what we've been duped into. And to do this while eating this food or product and being enraged by the fact that our health has been so tragically commodified. And of course, don't kid yourself that Pringles are benign and that they're most definitely not potatoes for tax purposes. Okay, so as a very relevant aside, I just want to say that I am aware of the burden placed on all of us to try to live a well and human life when so much of our existence is controlled by this capitalist complex that works to keep us, yeah, addicted, distracted and forever consuming. It's hard and it's relentless. However, 
I think once you comprehend how things work in one realm, whether it's in big oil or in big tobacco or fast fashion, whatever it might be, the list goes on, then the mindset can be applied across the board. Largely, I would say it is about turning our addiction into disgust. Okay, I will be back with another episode in a week's time. In the meantime, please stay wild and don't forget to rate wild on your podcast platform. I'll see you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.